Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 5. Last week, I wrapped up at the end of Exodus, Chapter 17, when the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing Exodus chapters 18 through 20, ending with the Ten Commandments. So let's get started. Chapter 18 provides us with a bit of a break from the Israelites complaining to Moses about how he shouldn't have freed them. In the beginning of this chapter, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up. When he shows up, he has Moses' wife and two sons in tow which is our first indication that at some point between when Moses reappeared in Egypt on his mission from God, and probably before he freed the Israelites, he sent his wife, along with his two sons, to live with his father-in-law Jethro. Recall that Jethro was a Midian, and that it was Moses' wife, and Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, that saved Moses from God's wrath. Previously, we were told that Moses' oldest son was named Gershom, and it is only now that we learn his second son was named Eliezer. In Hebrew, his oldest son's name translates to the phrase, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land, or something like that. Eliezer translates to the phrase, God help me, but to be clear, it could also mean God has helped me. And one more note, that a man by the same name, Eleazar, was somehow related to Abraham and would have inherited his wealth had Abraham had had no sons. Anyway, Jethro shows up back with Moses' wife and two sons in tow. He had heard of the great things Moses had accomplished, and when he arrived, the two men went to Moses' tent and caught up on all that had transpired since they had last spoken. Of course, Moses had many stories to tell. Then, something significant occurs. Recall that Jethro was not only a Midian, but he was a priest in that society. And, as I have previously covered, the Midians were a polytheistic people who worshipped a pantheon of gods similar to that of other Mesopotamian groups, gods such as Baal Pir and the Queen of Heaven, Ashtoreth, But, in Genesis chapter 18, Jethro, having heard of the great things done by the God of Moses, drops his pantheon and converts to Moses' monotheistic religion, offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. The next day, we learn of the legal system that the Israelites have formed upon their departure from Egypt. Actually, the word system is far too generous. Essentially, Moses would attempt to solely solve all of the disputes between the people. And remember, these people numbered somewhere between a million and a half and two and a half million. With Jethro watching, Moses would sit all day and act as a judge. Jethro then offers some sage advice. What is that that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? while all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. 
Moses' father-in-law says to him, What you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they are to go, and the things they are to do. You should also look for able men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their home in peace. End quote. Now Moses listened to his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And as such, the chapter ends with the establishment of a new legal process. Moses chose able men from all of Israel, and appointed them as head over the people, as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. They brought the difficult disputes to Moses, but decided the minor cases themselves. And this gives me one rather large concept to cover in the future, namely the judicial system of ancient Israel. Jethro, having returned his daughter and grandsons to Moses, and aided in the establishment of a court system, departs for Midian, and the chapter ends. Chapter 19 picks up with the Israelites on the move again. We are told that on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. The next sentence makes it very clear that the text isn't referring to the Sinai Peninsula, but instead Mount Sinai. Then God speaks to Moses, essentially telling him that if the people obey him and keep his covenants, then they will be his most favorite nation on the entire planet. Moses communicates this message to the Israelites who, in unison, say, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Immediately after, God speaks to Moses again, saying, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and so trust you ever after. Moses then tells God what the people said, presumably when they said that they will follow God's direction and commands. God then tells Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Be careful not to go up the mountain or touch the edge of it. Anyone who touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, 
and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Prepare for the third day. Do not go near a woman. End quote. And that last bit may sound a little odd in today's context. But remember, this was some 3,000 years ago, and society was a bit different. Also, the other two versions I use for this podcast phrase it a bit differently, focusing more on abstaining from marital relations. Also note the importance of three days. The time period is becoming a regular theme. I'll quote the next part of the narrative directly from the text, as it tells the story better than I ever could. Actually, having said that now, that opinion is true, at least in my mind, for the entirety of the Bible. Anyway, the text reads, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to the Lord to look. Otherwise, many of them will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and keep it holy. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let either the priest or the people break through to come up to the Lord. Otherwise he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, End quote. And with that, chapter 19 ends. Which of course brings me to chapter 20. And this chapter is huge in the establishment of the religions that we know today. Purposely plural. It's the chapter with the Ten Commandments. But, to be clear, the commandments are also found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'll cover that part in more detail when I get to that book. And, given the foundational aspects of this chapter, there's no way I can cover them as thoroughly as they deserve, even if I limit it to a purely historical perspective. As you would be correct in suspecting, there is an immense amount of material concerning the theological implications of the chapter available with even the most cursory of searches. I'll leave it up to you to find and explore these. As for the historical aspect, I'll save that for a later episode. Remember, the purpose of this part of the podcast is to provide a summary of the book. So let's get started. Number one. Actually, I'm going to skip the naming of the numbers. I'll explain why after going over the actual commandments. Having said that, what is sometimes regarded as the first is probably the most significant as it lays the foundation of authority for the remaining commandments. Too theological? Backing away. 
Anyway, the commandments, and it's probably best to just quote the text from the New Revised Standard Version. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I'm going to step out of the text just for a second. The word before could also be translated as the word besides, meaning besides me. So, before me or besides me. And in that are possible immense theological implications. Back to the text. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the inequities of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it, Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. Stepping out of the text for a bit of personal commentary. Growing up, my parents were always quick to remind me that this commandment came with a promise. I've returned that favor to my own children. Back to the text. You shall not murder. And I'm going to step out of the text again in just for a second. The footnotes of this version also note that the word murder could alternatively be translated as kill. Back to the text. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. End quote. After God gave these commandments to Moses, the text tells us of the population's reaction. Quoting again, When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance, and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. For God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The chapter wraps up with God giving pretty specific instructions about how to build an altar. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoke with you from heaven. 
You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You need make for me only an altar of earth, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. But if you make for me an altar of stone, do not build it of hewn stones. For if you use a chisel upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by stairs to my altar, so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. End quote. And that's the end of chapter 20 which leaves me with a little bit of time, but not enough to summarize the next chapter. So, I'll spend a minute or two exploring the numbering conventions of the commandments. Different religious traditions and textual sources divide the 17 verses of Exodus 20 that contain the commandments into 10 commandments somewhat differently. And, to note, the count of Ten Commandments has been suggested by both some theologians and researchers as merely a memorization aid. Nowhere in the text are they numbered, or is there any word from God that there are only ten? He, instead, gave us the commandments, not the numbers. So what are these sources and their differences? As fair warning, I'm trying to be concise. But in the end, it may end up being a bit wordy. To aid you in following me, I'll post a table on the podcast Facebook page to walk through the differences in the numberings. And with that, here goes. The Septuagint, which is generally followed by Orthodox Christians, also John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, which is followed by Reformed Christians, as well as the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, generally agree on a numbering system. In these three sources, the part beginning with, I am the Lord thy God, is viewed not as a commandment, but an introduction. Therefore, the first commandment is, there will be no other gods. No idols is number two. Number three is about using God's name in vain. Number four concerns the Sabbath. Number five is honor your parents. Six is to not kill. Seven is no adultery. Eight is no stealing. Nine is do not bear false witness. And ten is not to covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, animals, and everything else, all combined into the final commandment. And that's pretty straightforward. The Philo, which I previously touched on and will go into further detail later, is pretty much the same as the previously listed versions, except the commandments against killing and adultery are reversed in their order. No big deal. The Samaritan Pentateuch combines what the previous versions list as the first and second commandments, which are the two about no other gods and idols, and it combines these into the first commandment. For the next several commandments, it shifts forward in their numbering, leaving space at the end of the list for a new number 10. With this additional commandment concerning the erecting of a stone monument with the commandments on Mount Gerizim, another place to cover. But for now, I'll provide a brief bit of context. The Samaritan Pentateuch maintains that the Israelites were required to build an altar on Mount Gerizim. 
which the Samaritans view as the site of the tabernacle. The actual mountain is on the west bank of the Jordan River, in what is today Israel. Back to the commandment numbering system. The Jewish Talmud, which I have also previously touched on, considers the introduction, which again is the part that begins, I am the Lord your God, as the first commandment. Then, in a fashion similar to the Samaritan Pentateuch, combines the commandments about having no other gods and no idols into the second commandment. The rest is pretty much the same as the other versions, but does not include the Samaritan Pentateuch's concern of erecting a stone monument on Mount Gerizim. Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century AD Christian theologian and scholar, generally numbered the commandments the same as the Talmud. Well, except he did not consider the introduction to be a commandment. He then considered the prohibition of coveting your neighbor's wife as the ninth commandment, and the other thou shalt not covets to be the tenth commandment. So why would he do this and rearrange the order? Well, this is the order found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Catholic Catechism pretty much follows Augustine, including the separation of the covet commandments. But there is one exception. The introduction, I am the Lord your God, is considered part of the first commandment. Finally, Lutherans adhere to what is known as Luther's Large Catechism. More on that later. Certainly much later, like in terms of years. Practice that virtue known commonly as patience. With that said, Lutherans generally follow Augustine, too but reorder the covets so that your neighbor's house is number 9 and the other covets are number 10. And I know that was far too much detail in a short space, but I for one find it interesting that different beliefs have different ways to manage to work the list into 10 separate items. And like I said before, the Facebook page will have a table that, hopefully, will be more concise and minimize confusion. And with that, is probably as good of a place as any to end this week's episode. Before I roll the credits, to summarize, in the future, I'll cover the Israelite legal system, the history of kilns and trumpets, the places known as Mount Sinai and Mount Gerizim, what the word consecrate means, at least in the proper historic context, and of course, the history of the Ten Commandments. And with that, join me next week when I'll begin the summary of Exodus chapter 21. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the podcast's Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. That way you don't have to search again. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any content. Thanks for listening and have a great week.